So if it's if there's noise in the background, then I can frown furiously. Give a. <laughs> How directional is the mic? Did you just hear uh, Linda say good day? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yep. Not so directional. Okay. <laughs> Bloody hell. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. This episode of iFreaks is brought to you in part by Postcards. Postcards is the simplest way to allow user feedback from right inside your application. With just a simple gesture, anyone testing your app can send you a postcard containing a screenshot of the app and some notes. It's a great way to handle bug reports and feature requests from your client. It takes five minutes to set up and the first five postcards each month are free. Get started today by visiting www.postcard.es. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 95 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel we have Londo Brewington. Greetings from snowy North Carolina. James Uber. You stole my line. <laughs> Pete Hodgson. Good morning from sunny Los Angeles. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we're going to be talking a little bit more about testing and TDD in particular. So we, we talked a lot about kind of the tools that people use, mostly for, it was more of a BDD set of tools, kind of like RSpec and Ruby, last week with Natasha, or two weeks ago, I don't remember. Anyway, but we thought we'd talk a little bit more about the process of testing and some of the things that you can do to make that easier. I'm curious, how many of you guys are TDD practitioners? I'm in Some layer. of the time. <laughs> are we talking like a purist TDD, write your tests always first? Or, yeah, we write tests. You get into semantics with this, this debate. I think, I think we should start off with a definition of what does TDD mean? Might be a good place to start before we decide whether we're doing it or not doing it. It probably means you're doing it wrong. I can definitively say I'm doing neither. <laughs> So we got one clear answer. That's good. So, um, Chuck, what's your definition of TDD? <laughs> TDD? Well, it's the process of specifying what your code is supposed to do before you write it by writing tests. Well, I think that's a fairly good definition. I think I suspect that very few people are doing pure TDD. I certainly don't do that all the time. But I think there's a lot more people that are doing some form of kind of automated testing as part of their coding. And then there's a distinction of like when you do it and then how much of it you do and what type of it you do, I guess. Yeah, I think, I think we've discussed pretty, you know, in a couple of different episodes, the, the benefits of having tests. I'm curious though, you guys who have at least tried TDD or do TDD, you know, what, what has your experience been? Is it, was it hard and you gave up or was it, I stuck with it and I learned to love it or I'm, I'm kind of curious. So I think I've like I've seen a bunch of teams or definitely a bunch of individuals kind of go down the path of starting with TDD. And the advice that I now give to people is start with getting some understanding of how to do test automation, how to write unit tests, what a unit test is and isn't, that kind of stuff. 
get that figured out first before you try and learn how to do the TDD part of writing the test first because both of those are really hard skills and if you're trying to kind of solve or learn both of those at the same time, it's quite easy to get discouraged because it's really hard to do. When I normally see people start, I suggest they start with just learning how to do an, a unit test for like simple stuff and then do a unit test for hard stuff and then start thinking about how do I write the test to define the functionality before the functionality. I think it's really hard. It's a really hard skill and it's, it's a skill. It's like chess. It's easy to learn the basics, but you can spend years and years kind of learning the intricacies of how to do TDD correctly, in my opinion, how to do, how to write tests in general. So if we're talking about a unit test, what is that exactly? So that's... Okay, not a can of worms, but... Yeah, so my, my definition of a unit test is a automated test that kind of gives you a binary yes or no answer uh, that a computer can kind of say, yes, that passed, or no, that didn't. Uh, that's focused on a very small unit of code, so that's like an individual method or maybe an individual class. And then it's also something that's... I lost the third part. I can't remember what it was. I had a third piece, but I can't remember what it was. But it's basically, it's small. Oh, and it doesn't touch anything apart from the database. Or it doesn't touch the database, doesn't touch the file system, doesn't need anything to be standing up, doesn't need anything other than the class under test. So it's isolated, right? So it's an isolated, automated test of a small unit of code. That's okay. my working definition. I think that's a good definition. So it's just in code. So you can create a method that creates your object, calls some functions on it, sets some properties, and verifies what happens. You know, not going to the database not going to a network, just one small little unit. Yeah, and then yeah. The, the thing is, is that definition then gets extended so that you wind up with where it does reach into the outside world, you know, mocking and stubbing and things like that, which complicate the discussion around testing a bit. Right, so that was my definition of, of a unit test, right, that it's an isolated unit, a single kind of method or class, but that's partly my definition because I come from more of the mockist school of like aggressively isolating the code under test by using kind of mocks and stubs and stuff like that. There's a lot of folks who come more from the classical school of TDD or the statist school where they're okay with including instances of other objects and still defining that as a unit test. So even though you're not totally isolating your test to just a single class, that in that school of kind of, of unit testing, that would still be considered a unit test. And I think that's okay. Like I kind of agree with that philosophy, but it's it's a lot harder to teach to someone who's new because it's a fuzzy line between a unit test and a not unit test. But if you're hard and fast about it, it has to involve only one class, then it makes it easier to know whether you're writing a unit test or not. Okay, so if I'm hearing you correctly, from a Marcus point of view, you want one class under test at a time, and anything that that class would depend on, a dependency you would create a stub or a mock for? Yes, apart from value objects. So the way that I think about it is not in terms of, I'm now going back on what I just said of like having a hard and fast rule. But So let's say, for example, you have a class which is, let's say you have a, a method on a class and it's responsible for a user's name. So you give it a user object and it will give you like the, the user's name kind of ready for to be displayed. So it just kind of adds the first name and last name together or something. If I wanted to test that functionality and I was super strict about the only including the code that I'm testing, then I'd kind of give a stub version of the user object to that thing I'm testing to verify that, you know, when the first name is Pete and the last name is Hodgson, it gives me X, but I would create like a fake user using a stubbing library or something like that. In reality, it almost always makes sense. If you can create a real instance of that user object, and that user object is kind of a value object that doesn't drag a bunch of other dependencies along with it, 
then in my opinion, that's the preferred approach. It's more about isolating the focus of your test than it is about only having one kind of real object in play. I don't know if that made sense. I think it did. So you're not exclusively focused on one class, but you also brought up a term called value objects. What are you talking about with a value object? Basically, a, I guess what I'm thinking of with that is a thing that represents uh, an object in the system which you can create, you can instantiate an instance of that object without having to have a bunch of other dependencies attached to it. So, for example, of what a value object isn't, a view controller isn't a value object because it needs views, right? So a view controller, when you new it up, is probably going to want to have some actual views that it references, and it has all of these dependencies on other parts of the system. Whereas just like a really straightforward kind of value object type thing, like a user or a event or a money object or something like that. You can kind of create it in isolation. One, maybe one way of thinking of it is you can new up an instance of this class just giving it kind of primitive values or other value objects. Yeah, I, I kind of want to talk a little bit. We're talking a little bit about how you do this. I want to step up a level, though, and instead of talking about how to write the tests, I'd like to talk about how you do TDD. So kind of the mantra of TDD is red-green refactor. In other words, um, you write a test that doesn't pass, and then you run your tests and it comes back red, meaning it didn't pass. And then you write code to make it pass, and then you refactor the code so that it's not ugly. And I've actually had clients, you know, I get red-green, and then I show them something working, and then they don't want me to refactor, which is another uh, another discussion, but... Anyway, I really like the approach. One thing that I have to say is that as I get into TDD, I tend to drill down a little bit. So it's usually red, and then I go and I start writing the code. So I, I write more tests to specify the lower level stuff because I'll write a, a test for kind of the the use case or the you know the outer edge of things, and then I'll write tests for the next level in. So I've seen that kind of referred to as the kind of BDD style, yes. where and there's there's a lot of confusion here because there's BDD, the syntactic kind of style of like it blocks and describe blocks and stuff like that, like we were talking about with Natasha a couple of weeks ago. And then there's the BDD, the kind of philosophical thing of define the behavior from the top level and then use that to drive out the lower level tests that you build. And I think it's an interesting thing that these two things have got conflated when really they're quite separate. One is just a style of writing tests and the other is a is a philosophical approach to how you develop your software. But yeah, I've, I've seen that kind of referred to as like the BDD cycle where you have these high-level tests that describe the behavior of your system and then you use that one failing high-level test to drive out a bunch of smaller uh, unit tests and you're doing kind of like two, like a nested red-green refactor cycle inside of another one. I think yeah. the, the Cucumber book has either the Aspect book from the Prague programmers or the Cucumber book, I can't remember which one, has a, is the one where I saw that first kind of like formally defined and there's a, there's a, like a good diagram in there that shows this kind of like cycle within a cycle. So James, did you say that you've done TDD? I have. And what, what does your process look like? Is it generally that or is it uh, less formalized than that? It's different every time because I'm not always operating in a situation where I understand what things are supposed to look like at the end. I'm building up small parts, possibly. I don't maybe have clear requirements. But in the cases where I have a reasonable idea of what I'm supposed to be building, 
you know, it's definitely possible to get into a routine where, you know, write a test, get it to pass, refactor, red, green, refactor. It's possible to do it. And if I'm disciplined, that's a decent way of doing things. A lot of times I'm just trying to figure out what's going to work. You know, if we're doing UI stuff, you don't always know exactly what's going to look correctly. And that's, those things can be difficult to test as, you know, in a, a pure TDD cycle. But business logic, things that low down where you can actually test logic, that makes sense to do things for. But my approach is different based on how much I know about the project, if there's going to be other people using it, how easy the code is to break. So if something's going to break easy, I'll write a test just to keep it working. But it's definitely possible to do PD on iOS. It's just a little bit hokey. And I, th I think one of the things that is glossed over when people start talking about TDD, how great it is, the people that have already gone through that learning cycle are the people talking about how great it is. And you say, you sit down like, hey, I'm going to start trying to write tests. And you have no clue how to navigate the different things like we're talking about. You start at the top level, you start at the bottom level. If you have three or four classes working together, is it okay to test at that level? And depending on the person you have to ask questions from, you get different answers. But I, th I think it's something that we don't talk a lot about because learning how to write tests, it's hard. It's very different than how I learned to program. You know, I did a lot of O stuff for years and years, but writing testable code is definitely a different mindset. And it, it takes a while of trying something and like, like, that's terrible. Who would ever do it this way? And like, they go, yeah, 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 but here's another way you can do it. So there's definitely things you can do and it, it, it's valuable to learn it, but it's not an easy task if you're not used to it. Well, that's, that's sort of the thing that I was curious about as someone who's actually attempted to do this a couple of times and, and I've never been able to, to stick with it. And I'm really looking for, as someone is interested and think there's value in it, but I keep running into that roadblock and it's easier just to go back to the old way. How do I beat that? I think it's, it's okay to take a run at it and get a little bit better and then take another run at it. I, I don't think you, people should give themselves a hard time because they like failed at getting test infected the first time they tried. Uh, like for me personally, it took me probably two or three years of off and on kind of playing around with this and then, you know, doing it on my own time on like my own projects and then kind of not doing it at work and then trying to do it at work and not being able to figure it out. It took me a, a few years of that before it really clicked for me. So part of, and I think part of it is just trying it out for a while and, and kind of muddling through how to solve these problems and kind of being okay with it being actually quite a long haul to get to the point you're going to be comfortable solving these problems. Yeah, look for quick wins. You know, if you start just take a random block of code that we had to write in iOS, maybe we're talking with core data, maybe we're talking with notification center, we're talking to views and trying to start with unit testing with code like that, it's difficult. But it's easier to test code that the just plain old NS objects, the Ponzi. What, what Ponzo. do we call that? Was it? Ponzo. Ponzo. <laughs> you know, start with a model object that is just code that formats a string or something like that, that just does some business logic. Start with things like that. With view controllers, you can write tests to make sure that your views are connected in the nib. Things like that. John Reed did some kind of katas for doing things like that. So start with small sections of code. You don't have to do everything because it's hard to test everything. And I don't test everything. But. I'd also say, like, maybe it's a good advice that when you're when you're starting, like, I totally agree with that sentiment of of find kind of easy places to to kind of get familiar just with 
mechanics of writing your tests and kind of to get some quick wins, as it were, and, and to feel like you're making some progress. And part of that is avoiding initially testing stuff that requires a lot of like mocking and, and stubbing and using all of those power tools because uh, partly it's just hard and it's an extra thing to learn at the same time as everything else. And there's a bunch of kind of syntax that you have to learn and just APIs and, and it's confusing. And partly because that's where people really can, that's the first stage of kind of failure that I've seen with people trying to get into unit testing where they'll write tests using mocks and stubs that just absolutely shackle their code. In there's, there's this kind of like trough of despair with TDD uh, or with unit testing for a lot of teams where about three months in after doing it, they suddenly realize that every time they, they want to change a line of code, they have to change like 500 lines of unit tests. And normally that's because they've kind of drunk the Kool-Aid a little bit too much on mocking and stubbing, and they've over-specified the behavior of the internals of their software. Um, and it's a very, very easy trap to fall into. So I would say initially focus on the long game and start off by just getting good tests around things that are easy to test, like business logic that's divorced from framework code, that kind of thing. And then you won't, uh, you're less likely to get into a, a big kind of tangle of mocks and stubs where you feel like the tests are slowing you down rather than speeding you up. That's a great point. The first, and from like the Marcus school of testing, I was scarred from that for a long time because the first time I sat down with something that had been thoroughly unit tested in the Marcus style, I did, I sat down and got to this code. It was all tested. I'm like, oh, great. And I did the simplest little refactor, just extracted a method, things in there, and I broke like 40 tests and I was completely lost. So there's different approaches and i think the important thing i think what you talked about earlier chuck is to refactor and you refactor your code but you also refactor your tests and you need to know how to do that and refactoring can include deleting stuff it's okay to delete a test that's no longer providing any value i love deleting stuff yeah (laughs) delete all the tests there we go they all pass I mean, it's true though, because I, so I do this a lot with particularly, and I guess we're kind of, we're kind of skipping to kind of once you've become really good at TDD, but for myself now, now that I'm very, very comfortable with kind of the mechanics of how a TDD flow goes, I will very often start off a new work day or a new kind of problem that I need to solve by just writing a really stupid test that I'm planning to delete in about 10 minutes just to kind of get past that writer's block. So I'll write stupid tests like the class exists. And the test provides no value other than to give me a place to start driving towards building out that class's functionality. And I'll, I'll write that test and I'll get it to pass and then I'll kind of move on. And then about, you know, a day later or an hour later, I'll just go through and be like, oh, that test is serving no value anymore and I'll, and I'll, and I'll delete it. So there's no kind of sacred cows in terms of like, oh, well, if I delete this test, then I'll lose some kind of protection. That's true, but you'll also lose some overhead in terms of the amount of tests you need to change when you change your code. Yeah, at the point where you have a lot of redundant functionality that you're testing, you have a lot of tests that are testing the, the same thing in maybe slightly different ways, and that can slow down your ability to, to change, which goes against what we're trying to do with testing in, in the first place. Yeah, I think that's really true. I mean, the, the tests are there to give you the confidence to move forward, and that speeds up development. That's something that I picked up from Martin Fowler when we talked to him about refactoring on Ruby Rogues. So, you know, your tests enable you to refactor without worry. It, it enables you to add things. 
because you understand that you have this safety net that's going to catch most of the things that you can make go wrong. Now, one of the benefits that I've heard about this approach is that it helps you with design, that you're, you're making, you're designing classes in a more efficient way, the, the ways that make sense. But do you find that you're experiencing that or not? Yeah, I would Absolutely. say, I would say that I do. And the reason is, is that basically what you do is when you're doing the test or yeah, the test step where you're writing the test that's not going to pass, you're specifying the criteria for success for whatever it is you're writing. And at the same time, you're also usually specifying some kind of API. I'm going to call this method. I'm going to do this kind of thing to this object. And so you have an idea of what you want to do, what your outcomes need to be. And so that's that design step or the design piece. And so when I sit down to write some code and I write the test first, that's what I'm thinking about is, you know, the client or the customer says that they want a button that sends an email to the person who clicked it. And so when they tap that button on their, on their screen, I already have their email address because they entered it into the app. So now I'm boiling that down. Okay. So I need to check and see that an email was sent, that it was sent to this address, that it had this text in it, you know, those kinds of things. And so then when I sit down to write the code, you know, I can say, okay, so I need the button wired up to this action on the view controller and you know, and then I can just test that action on the view controller and make sure that it can uh, see the outcomes that I specified. And so when I go to write the code, then I know what the method needs to be called. I know what it needs to do. And I know what I'm going to be looking for in the end. And so if I forget a step or miss something, then it gives me that reminder. But it also helps me just think about and specify what exactly has to happen in enough detail to where I can put it into a test and tell the computer what to look for. I think the analogy that I make when I'm trying to describe that, like why does testing first uh, improve the kind of design of your code? The, the way that I look at it is when you're writing your test first, the, the first thing you're doing when you're defining some new piece of functionality is you're thinking about how is someone going to use this piece of functionality. So just like really good quality iOS apps are user-focused and, and we're thinking how is the user going to achieve their goal and that that's the thing that drives our decision-making from a usability point of view in like the interface for the user. If you're writing your tests first, then you're forced to think about how people are going to use the internal kind of APIs of your classes and, and your objects first. So you're always driving out the design of your application based on usability. And what that means is it doesn't mean the code is inherently higher quality. What it does mean is the code is easier to change over time. So your design has better ergonomics. So when you need to change things in three months' time or in two weeks' time or whatever, it's easier because the classes are like, you know, more loosely coupled, more cohesive because your tests have been driving them in that direction. So that's like, that's for me is the reason I do TDD is because it, it helps me write code that's easier to maintain in the long run. Because most of our time we're changing code, we're not writing code. Yeah, I agree. I think you stumbled on a truism that I've heard before, but I, I just say it. If code is easy to test, it's easy to change, which mm-hmm. is very important to me for code quality. If you get to a point where this your code you're writing is hard to write tests for, 
that's probably a, a sign that maybe it's time to refactor. And you get that feedback while you're writing the code versus a couple months down the road when you're trying to change something else. So you get feedback about your design, how easy your code is to use up front, which is very valuable because your head's in the right place where you can actually start working with it. It's kind of like to labor that analogy of user interface a little bit more. It's kind of like the difference between creating the entire UI based on how you know the internals of the application work. You know, like, oh, well, there'll be a list of events, so I'll create a table with events inside of them, and I will sort them in the order that they are in the database because that makes the most sense to me based on the internals. If you do that, then you'll build a UI that's functional but not really very usable. And if you then take that kind of mediocre UI and try to turn it into a good UI, it takes a lot of time and effort. Whereas if you start with the focus of how is someone going to use this application, then you tend to build it right the first time. For me, TDD gives me that same kind of aspect, but for the internal design of my of my classes rather than the the user interface of the app. Yes, definitely. Another benefit is if you're writing tests before you write code, you stop with the test pass. Right. My default is always to add more functionality than I need into a class. I'm creating a new class. Oh, here's all the things I might need, and I just start writing them out. And a lot of times, I'll start writing tests, and like I'll actually have a third of the functionality I thought I needed, and I'm done. So that's one. That's one third of the moving parts that can break in the future. So you know, one of the most important things you can do to improve code quality is to have less of it. So <laughs> it keeps you honest. I think that's where Chuck's thing of kind of the BDD cycle of kind of starting with what's the functionality I need from like the top level. And then that defines what lower level tests to use to drive out the kind of the internal functions. That's when that really kicks in, right? Because when we start doing something, if we start at the bottom level of an individual class, and it, like, let's say we've, we've got like a, a user, a place to store users, and we need a way to create users, and we need a way to edit users. If we're just starting at that low level, we're probably going to say, oh, well, if, I need, if I'm going to be able to create them and uh, edit them, then I probably need to be able to delete them and, and look them up. And so we'll just automatically build out all of the functionality we think we might need in the future. But if we're using that BDD cycle to drive it from the UI down, then we'll tend to be less likely to build unnecessary features, which, like James said, like stuff you don't, you don't have to maintain is, is a win. We should put a caveat on the truism that Testing makes your code better because at certain extremes, especially with static languages, if you're insistent on testing everything, like framework calls, things like that, you can get your code in a state where it's harder to read. And, you know, this is more problems with, I I learned TDD in doing C sharp. So if you wanted to access something from the framework, you had to create a wrapper for it and pass it in as a dependency versus just using it. And, you guys are more Ruby people where you don't really have to do that type of things. You can just kind of mock around it and use some runtime food to, to write the test for it. But if you get to the point where you're testing every little framework call and having to wrap that functionality and pass it in, that can make code harder to read. So at the extreme ends, it can have a negative effect on readability, in my opinion. And that can be more of a concern with you know Swift versus Objective-C because of its static nature. So a follow-up question to that, so I I say, I'll give it another shot, and I go down that path, but I work on a team where we're not doing that as a practice. Is that more or less difficult, or is it irrelevant whether or not I'm the only person on a team of developers taking this approach? Yeah, that's the tough question with iOS, because testing is not integrated into the culture, like in different communities. It still can be valuable to write tests and have them work. 
because it's not hard to run them if people remember to. So if you write your tests, that's the line in the sand saying, this is how my code is supposed to work. No one break it. So if they break it, you can go to them and say, hey, don't break this. But it, it, it is difficult. If you're the only person trying to write tests, it's hard to make that a culture. It has to be allowable, I guess. So people up, up top that are making the decisions have to be at least on board, I think. But it, it is valuable to be the beachhead where you're writing some tests and say, hey, don't break these tests. It's, it's definitely challenging. You, I think the basic tests that are easy to write and easy to fix, the kind of the beginner level unit tests, I think there's a, a reasonable argument to be made that you could just introduce those on your own. I mean, discuss it with the team and let them know. Don't just kind of sneak them in there, I guess. But kind of do it as something that, you know, let's try this out and ask the team to keep an eye on them. And, and if they break, then at least, I don't know, let you know or, or ask you to help fix them. Uh, where I've seen that kind of, that can go wrong is if the whole team isn't bought into the idea of trying to do this, these kind of very uh, mock-heavy tests that mean that it's harder for the team as a whole to change code without breaking stuff. You can sour everyone to the idea of tests in general uh, and make it a lot harder to get the, the rest of the team on board. So I think that's part of why I would say start with some easy kind of entry-level testing and try and get like enough of the team interested and sold on that, that then you can kind of say, okay, great. As a team, we like this. Now let's try and step it up and get more of our code, more of our code under test. One other thing that I've seen really help with getting teams on board with testing, and I've, I've gone through this with a couple of different teams, is automation as much as you can. So in Ruby and Rails, there's Guard. And so you just set it up so that it's like, look, all you have to do is run this command and it'll run your tests for you. There are test runners in most systems. I haven't explored what's available in iOS or, you know, in uh, Cocoa or whatever in particular, but I'm sure there's something out there that'll do it. I mean, it's even, in some ways, it's even easier for a language like Objective-C and actually also like Swift because there's already that kind of idea of compiling your code. And so you've already got uh, the idea of after I've done making a change to my source code, I run the build step and I get some feedback on whether it compiles and I get some feedback from, you know, the linter or from Clang telling me, you know, like this, this variable isn't used. So we're already in the mindset of getting feedback on the quality of our code when we hit a button. And so for me, when you want to get started with unit testing, you just include the unit tests in that hitting that button. It's actually it's easier, I think, to get an iOS team on board with that idea than it is to get, for example, a JavaScript team on board because they're used to, you know, uh, save the file, reload the browser, and that's the, that's the feedback loop for them. Yeah, one other thing that I've seen really helps is continuous integration. There are systems out there that are varying degrees of easy to set up. And so if you can get something set up in an hour or something that notifies the team when something breaks, you know, via email or by having some uh, dashboard up in your office or something like that. Again, you know, it's just another reminder, hey, somebody broke something, let's go fix it. And all it has to do is save your team a whole bunch of trouble because the CEO is pissed off because there's a bug. You know, oh, we caught that, it's a good thing we caught that. Or, you know, a quick reminder that, you know, somebody did something that was a little bit different from the, the team's norms and save somebody time down the line, it, it starts to pay itself forward. It starts to pay for itself. I mean, I would say if you're an iOS team today and you're saying, should we start writing unit tests and you don't have CI 
and stop thinking about writing unit tests and set up CI that just checks whether your code compiles, you're going to get a lot more bang for your buck than that. Once you've got that in place, then you can start thinking about unit tests. Like you're, you're, you're leaving a ton of money on the table. If you, if you're a team of more than one person and you're not doing CI, you're not having the computer do the work for you to check that the code that you just checked in actually compiles, then you're just leaving money on the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's completely easy to get something working on your machine that doesn't work for anyone else. You know, you had a framework from the wrong position that's only exists on your machine, and you go home for the night and everyone else is out of luck. So a CI catches that right away. Right, or you merge in someone else's code, and there's a merge conflict, so you fix the merge conflict and then push, and you forgot to kind of check whether it compiles, and it turns out that, you know, there's some stupid error and it doesn't compile. And like, Everyone's made those kind of mistakes, and it's nice to have the computer tell you you made the mistake rather than someone be grumpy at you the next day. Or call you at 3 a.m. Right. We'll show up at your house at 3 a.m. <laughs> I hate when they do that. So what about other areas in which we can test? And we've talked a lot about, you know, testing at the unit level and using uh, BDD, but are there some other practices that you use to improve the overall app quality by testing at uh, higher levels or more comprehensively? So for me, that's why I like to have that distinction of, like, what's a unit test? Because then we can talk about what other types of testing can we do. So... So if we say that a unit test is this low-level test of an individual class or maybe a few classes kind of collaborating in isolation, then you can also have like higher-level tests that are testing the way that groups of classes or the whole system works together. So, for example, you could have tests that check that when the view controller tries to do something to a domain object, then it does something, saves it to core data, and then refreshes the some other part of the UI or something like that. So you can write these tests that are more high level and are not really testing so much the functionality of individual things, but more the way that these things uh, integrate with each other, so the way different parts of the system, different parts of the application integrate with each other. And then you can kind of go higher level than that and start talking about UI-based tests where you're actually kind of prodding automatically, pretending to be a user and kind of poking at buttons on the screen or doing whatever, and you're making sure that, you know, when I tap add user and I fill in my first name and my last name and I hit save, then that user gets saved to some back-end service or something like that. So that's like the very highest level test you can do, kind of UI-level acceptance tests. And I think one of the things that people really want to do is do a lot of tests. Once, if you give someone the ability to do those high-level uh, UI automation tests, they almost always start wanting to write more of them because they feel more valuable because they're testing more of the code at once and they're kind of in some ways easier to write because you don't have to change the way that you're writing code. You just kind of pretend to be a user and write some little scripts and verify that they do stuff. The problem is those tests are also very, very prone to failure, very, very prone to break when you change your code and very, very slow to run. So they're actually way less valuable than unit tests. Now, in that intermediary area that you mentioned, sort of well, one layer up above unit tests, but t- testing a collection of things, say, for instance, when an action happens in a view controller, am I using the same toolkit to write those tests that I am at the unit level, or do, does it require me to use some additional libraries? Or, uh, That's a good question. I'm actually a really big fan of just using the same tools. So, you know, if you're using, if you're writing Objective-C, you can use Kiwi, for example, as the test runner and the test framework for your unit tests. And then you could also use Kiwi to write these kind of higher level tests. You end up having to do more setup and teardown because by definition, you're kind of setting up a collaborating 
kind of cluster of classes and then poking at them and prodding at them and verifying what they do. But you can still use the same libraries. But what's really, really nice about iOS in general is there's no magic with the way that the UI works. The view, view controllers are just classes. They derive from NS object indirectly, obviously. But they're, they're just objects that you can instantiate and that you can mess around with. And the same is true for everything else in, in the system. So it's it's very, very possible, just like Jane was saying with kind of the John Reed's example of testing how view controller binds to nibs. It's very easy for you to do that programmatically uh, using a regular kind of unit test test runner like Kiwi and still verify that higher level behavior. And you can even do that all the way up to like the, the UI automation level. So if you're using KIF, which is like one of the automation UI automation frameworks available for iOS, you can actually, I don't know if they've changed this now. It used to be that they had a separate test runner, but there's no reason you couldn't use Kiwi, for example, to drive KIF tests which simulate user interactions. So it's still running in process. It's still running as kind of as a Kiwi test suite, but it's testing, you know, when I swipe this button, then I should see this text in this area of the UI, that kind of thing. So how does KIF work? How does it simulate what's happening on the UI? Is it it's, button clicks? What is, what's going on? So the way it used to work is it would actually it would simulate the event. I think this is the way it still works. I haven't looked at it for a while. Uh, it basically simulates the low-level touch events that occur in the system. So there's, there's, there's three parts of, of any kind of testing, UI testing framework. There's simulating interaction with the UI. There's verifying output from the UI. And then there's a third part, which I've forgotten. Jeez, I had like a whole conference talk about this. I should know this stuff. But basically, you're like either prodding at the UI or you're verifying the state of the UI. And the way that KIF uh, prods at the UI is it when I say, you know, I want to swipe at this section of the screen, it'll actually create a bunch of low-level UI events and kind of pump them into the responder chain, I think, if I recall correctly. So again, not really doing anything too magical. And then to verify what the UI looks like, you just walk the view hierarchy just like you would, like just programmatically, just by getting the subchildren of views. So what are some other ways of testing UIs? Well, I'm the maintainer of a... <laughs> what you should ask. <laughs> uh, so, so KIF is one way. The other way, there's two schools of... For UI level testing, there's essentially two types of tool. There's uh, the KIF type of tool that's kind of in process. You write your tests in Objective-C, and it's just directly injecting stuff into the, like I said, like just directly injecting things into your UI. The other kind of technique uh, or the other kind of style of these UI level tests is more kind of independent, where you have a little kind of thing that's embedded inside of your app that's listening for commands over an HTTP connection. And you write your tests in whichever, whichever language you prefer. And you, so you might have a test that says, you know, when I swipe this thing, then I should see this thing on the UI. And under the covers, that test turns into a series of commands that you're sending to your application to say, hey, simulate this swipe. Hey, verify that this text has this value, that kind of thing. And internally, your app is using similar techniques in order to do the simulation that KIF uses. But you don't have to write your tests in Objective-C. So a very popular version of these is Calabash. The one that I maintain is Frank, and then there's another one called Appium. Um, oh, and then I guess there's like the standard one that I, <laughs> I forgot about, the official one that Apple has. So Apple has UI automation, which does similar stuff, is a similar kind of style to that second style, like kind of out-of-process style, but it uses some kind of secret APIs that we're not allowed to use 
to really get under the covers into the application. And in that case, you use JavaScript and a rather clunky mechanism to, to run the tests that aren't really very well set up for CI, for example. So given that you know, your team wants to start writing UI tests like this, who writes the tests? Is the developer writing the tests before they code? Is QA writing the tests? What has worked in the teams that you've been on? So it's super context sensitive. It really depends on the type of teams. For the standard type of kind of ThoughtWorks shaped team where we have devs that are kind of very into test automation, then usually a dev will write these higher level tests in collaboration with a QA or a BA. So they'll sit together and, and like, like Chuck was kind of alluding to earlier with the BDD cycle, we might get together before we play a story and kind of say, well, how can we verify this behavior with a test, and then we'll kind of write the test, uh, or at least sketch out the, the high-level test that we want to use. And then quite often it would be a dev that would actually implement that test. So that's one way of doing it. In other teams, you might have QAs whose sole job it is, kind of test automation QAs whose sole job it is to write these tests. That tends to be less effective because the QA doesn't have the ability to change things inside of the application to make it easier to test. And it also doesn't really, it divorces the idea of writing the tests from, it makes the kind of the team feel like there's the real work and then there's the test work, which I, I don't think is true because your job is to build quality. Your job's not just to build stuff and then hope that it works. So yeah, you can kind of have separate people doing that, but it doesn't work as well. Uh, so from being the maintainer of, of a testing tool, one of the questions that I used to get asked quite regularly and actually probably still get asked quite regularly is, hi, I don't have access to the source code of the application I'm testing. How do I instrument it to get it under test? And my response is normally, don't even bother trying to do this. If you don't have application, if you can't like talk to your developers enough to get them to insert this testing tool into your framework, then that's the problem you need to fix before you start talking about test automation. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. And I would say like the second approach that having like QA write the test, I've been on teams where that's been used pretty effectively. So if we were on a Agile cycle where we'd have two weeks scrums and we'd figure out the functionality we wanted to do. We all agree on what it's supposed to do. The tester knew what he was supposed to test. And if you're used to working the same people, you get into the a cadence where you understand how to talk each other's language. Like, I, And you'll identify when, okay, I'm going to break your test now. So you need to update things. But I've had success doing it the other way, having QA writing it. But I think yeah, having developers is really, it's solid. The one thing that I think is really, really important, if you've got to the point that QAs are writing these tests, you start seeing this, this thing where the tests accumulate over time, right? Because it's someone's job to build these tests, so they accumulate over time. What's really, really critically important if you're doing that is to set up someone to have the responsibility to also delete those tests over time or merge them into larger tests or do something to maintain the size of that test suite because those tests are really the, the they give you like very good high level feedback if something works or not. But in terms of on investment, they're really, really low return on investment compared to lower level tests. So you need to be really quite focused on keeping that test suite very small, in my opinion. I've, I've, I've heard some people be as extreme as saying no more than 10 high level tests per application. Now, maybe that's a, a very extreme example, but it's really important to do that because otherwise the test suite becomes fragile and people stop paying attention to the tests. And at that point, they have zero value or they have negative value because you still have to run them and you still have to look at why they failed, but they're not giving you any useful feedback. 
because you're ignoring the feedback, right? The tests go red and you say, oh, let me rerun them and hopefully they'll pass this time. Yeah, definitely. If you if your team doesn't trust your test suite, it's next to useless. Yeah, I would argue it's less than useless. Like it, <laughs> you're, it's harmful. You're, yeah, you're you're expending energy to maintain this test suite. You're waiting on the tests to pass before you do something else. You're paying the tax of having this test suite, but you're not getting the value because when the tests say something's broken, you turn around to the test and say, "I don't believe you. I'm going to run you again." Right. So where's the value in that? Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned brittle tests being one factor where UI tests aren't as valuable or give you low return on investment. What other factors play into that? The biggest one that you see when you get to tests at this level is test data and environments. So usually you're running these tests integrated so that it's not just the application, the iOS app that's in play, but it's also like some backend services plus the data that's involved, like the, you know, the user that's logged in and whether, you know, let's say you're testing a ticketing application, you need not just users in the system, you need events in the system and different events of different types and some of them have to be sold out, some of them have to not be sold out in order to reproduce all these scenarios. If you don't have a really uh, solid mechanism for managing that in, in one way or another, then you will see loads and loads of, of flaky tests because the environment's down because someone deployed something to it or the data changed because someone needed to test some other kind of scenario in the system. So you need you need a lot of maturity about how to deal with those things. And there's a few different ways to solve those problems, but you need to know that they're problems and know and be working on solving them. That's a good point. I was also going to add that you know, UI tests can take a while to run. So if you've got a bunch of them and it takes hours yeah. to run, you don't have the feedback that, oh, I broke something, and you know right away. You know, if you run a unit test, you compile over in your test suite, if you have a ton of tests, it's still under a minute. But you, ideally, you want a lot less than that. You Generally, it's you know, 10, 15 seconds, which gives you instant feedback that something is wrong, and you can fix it right away. If you have to wait a long time to get the feedback that you broke something, that lessens how useful it is. Yeah, and it goes back to that return on investment thing, right? Like a unit test is just a lot more valuable. It gives you a lot more bang for the buck. It will fail in a lot more specific a way. So it will fail not in a maybe this works, maybe this didn't. It will fail in like, you know, I expected 2 plus 2 to equal 4, but 2 plus 2 equals 5. It's very unambiguous. You don't need to run the test again to see whether it still is broken. Uh, it'll fail a lot faster, and you'll know where in the code base to look, right? So like a unit test is kind of gives you rapid feedback, it gives you focused feedback, and it gives you unambiguous feedback. All those three are things that you don't get from a UI level test. It takes ages to run. You don't really trust it all the time. And if it breaks, it could be anywhere from like some service that you don't even control all the way up to the way that you're rendering stuff in the UI. So that's why I always advocate. That's why I keep yammering on here about focus way more on unit tests and integration tests than on those UI level tests because you'll get way more bang for the buck on your lower level tests. So if you want to be focused more on the lower-level tests because they have more value, at what point do you make the transition into the higher-level tests? I mean, I have my own answer for this, but I'm curious what you have to say. So what do you mean, like, like how do you decide whether to do a low-level test or a high-level test? So, for example, I write unit tests mostly because they're easier to write, they don't take as long to write, they don't take as long to run, and, you know, I, it, it pinpoints where the problem is. And I don't write the higher level tests as often because they take longer to write, they take longer to run, and ultimately they don't really tell me where the problem is, they just tell me which workflow it's in. 
So mm -hmm. if you're writing the higher level tests, it's usually tap here, tap here, click here, click here, enter this into this field, blah, 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 and then do your thing. And so, you know, but some of those, you know, sometimes it is worth writing them. One lens to look at this through is, is in terms of what's the value I'm trying to achieve from writing this test. So with unit tests, I'm writing a test because I want to verify the functionality of, of my code, right? I want to verify that when I go to format a user's name and their last name is longer than 50 characters, I just use their first name or something like that, right? So the focus of a unit test, the value you're getting from it is verifying the functionality of your system. As you go higher up, this, the value you're looking for is not does my app do the right thing? It's more do all of the pieces plug together correctly? Mm -hmm. So that plays into things like do I test happy path cases versus sad path cases? So at the unit test level, I want to test all of the ins and outs and all of the nooks and crannies of the functionality. So I want to check what happens when the username has zero characters, what happens when the username has 5,000 characters, all of these like sad path kind of edge cases. On the other extreme, at the level of a UI-based test, I should be testing the very, very happy path through the system because if I want to test all the corner cases at that level, I'm going to have a huge amount of tests. And again, like you're paying a lot of tax for each of those tests. That's one lens to look at it through is like, why am I writing this test? What's the value I want out of it? And at the UI level, all you're really testing is do all of the moving parts tie up together correctly in a very broad sense. Like, am I able to save the passwords or am I able to validate the password somewhere? My take on this is it goes back to value. And so what are the most valuable things to test? In other words, if I spend four hours writing some kind of top-level acceptance test on things, you know, you tap here, you tap here, you do this, you do this, you do this, is it worth that amount of time? And is it worth the hassle of then having to run these longer-running tests that automate the UI? And usually what it boils down to is, will I lose lots of money if this path doesn't work. So, you know, if it's something like in an iOS app, you know, some feature in the app, you know, that I, I could conceivably push an update out and fix that versus people can't buy any of my in-app purchases. Well, I'm not making any money till I get that out there, right? So, you know, I may test one path, but not the other based on that. In web apps, it's you know, it's typically the payment process and then like the couple of critical features that people are going to leave and not pay me any more money because it doesn't work. Or, you know, it's going to cause me some legal issue because it doesn't work. I think that's a really good way of thinking about it, right? It's essentially return on investment. Like, is this test going to pay for itself? Yep. Another, another kind of thing along the same lines in terms of what's the value I'm getting out of this is just from a regression point of view, it's nice to have some kind of very loose, broad test coverage around parts of the code that you don't touch very often because you're not going to, like the, the login flow, if you break that, yes, it's critical that, that you fix it, but also you're going to find out pretty quickly because no one can log into your application. But not displaying the legal disclaimers you probably won't notice for months because who cares about the legal disclaimers, right? But if it's important for you to display them, then you should probably have some test that kind of covers your butt there, basically. Right, and then it's not an in-depth, does it have all this text, blah, 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 blah. It's just, right. is it there? 
right? And I, I am perfectly happy to do some hacky stuff there, like say, load this view or, you know, click through to where the legal disclaimers should be or tap through to where the legal disclaimers should be and look for a specific phrase somewhere in the UI. Yeah. And that's going to cover me most of the time. It's an easy test to write. It's an easy test to change if the legal disclaimers change. But it gives you some kind of loose level of safety net that you haven't screwed something up and not noticed. Yep. All right. I'm not sure if I have anything else to add or ask. Do you guys have anything else to go into before we get to the picks? I don't. No, I think it's a good show. Yeah, I agree. I think I've got one last thing to add because this comes up a lot as well with UI-based tests is someone always says, like, isn't there some kind of way to just record the user interactions, like record my manual testing process and then just play it back and that way I don't have to write these tests? The answer is yes, it's possible, but no, it's not a good idea. So don't even, don't do it. There are tools out there that let you do record and playback, but if you want to talk about fragile tests, imagine a test where that doesn't understand anything about your application at all. And so anytime you change anything in your application, all the tests break and you can't just go into the code and fix it. You have to re-record the interactions by hand. So these are a very tempting kind of attempting path because it feels like, oh, all I have to do is interact with the application. I don't need to write any code. I don't have to have any specialist skills. But they always end up being kind of a, a weight that drags you down rather than something that gives you any benefit. Yeah, on the web, I have seen it where it captures like the ID or class of the element and then attempts to build out the go find this element with this specifier later. But they're never perfect. In a lot of the cases, I would say around half or more, you wind up having to going and go in and tweak those right. scripts to the point where you may as well have written it yourself because the generated code is just awful. Right, and that's in the web world where these tools are relatively mature. In iOS world, you can guarantee that they're going to just they they're not going to produce um, they're not going to pr produce anything that you can maintain in the long run. Yep. It would be like trying to design a UI by just kind of taking a Photoshop mock-up and kind of cutting it up into pieces and then just slapping it directly into your application. It's a, it'll get the, the first version done really quickly, but as soon as someone asks for a change, you're going to have to start from scratch all over again. Yep. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do picks. Jane, do you want to jump in and do picks? All right, I can do some picks. So I'm going to do two picks, and they're probably the same two picks I do every time we talk a lot about TDD. So the first one's going to be the John Reed. He's got a screencast on testing view controllers. Alondo, you talked about how do you get to start. One thing is just write some tests for your view controllers. Make sure that the views are created correctly. And I think we've talked about this in the past where that seems like a little bit anal to test that way. But if, you're, if your code lives on for a while, you do refactoring. You change things around in your nib. It's easy to break stuff. So these are valuable tests. I, I recommend writing them. And this is one of the things that really helped me understand how you can start writing tests for iOS. The second one is at least the first book. I'm not sure if there's other ones, but Test Driven iOS Development by Graham Lee. It's another thing that really helped me uh, understand how to do how to write unit tests in iOS land. You know, it helps you understand like things like how do you test a table view? I don't know, but this book tells you. So Test Driven iOS Development. Good book. Those are my picks. All right, Alondo, do you have some picks for us? Yes, I do. Okay, um, my first pick is actually an FAQ that just came out on the Ray Window, looks like, about WatchKit. So if you are interested, 
in uh, learning about WatchKit, what it can do right now, um, and have some ideas about some features that you may want to add to an existing app, this is a, it's a really good starting point to kind of get an idea of what's available and what the status of WatchKit is at this, at this point. And my second pick is a book I uh, started reading yesterday. Uh, I thought it was pretty interesting. Uh, called This Idea Must Die, Scientific Theories That Are Blocking Progress. And it's basically about sort of some long-held conceptions that we have in science or cognitive psychology. And prominent scientists are, are speaking to sort of why we should abandon those ideas. So uh, I, I found it, I'm finding it really interesting so far. So it's a, it's a really cool read. And those are my picks. All right. Pete, do you have some picks for us? My picks are going to be very on topic, which is slightly less exciting, maybe. But uh, so my first pick is going to be kind of around the same thing I've just been talking about for a while, around kind of less UI tests, more unit tests. Uh, there's a, a well-known concept in this area called the test pyramid. Martin Fowler, as is often the case, has a very nice article that describes briefly, nice short read, what the test pyramid is and why it's important. Uh, so that's my first pick. My second pick is a book that, in a timely enough manner, I actually just finished reading. It's a book by Jay Fields called Working Effectively with Unit Tests. And this is a really, really good read from someone who's been in the trenches doing TDD for probably over a decade, I would guess. Very good, pragmatic guide on how to pull this off. So definitely well worth a read. I, I really like it, even though I disagree with some of the stuff he says. And there's some stuff he says that's just really awesome, so... Uh, well worth a read, short book, and pretty cheap. Uh, and then my last pick is a beer. I'm going to pick Avery Brewing's IPA. I had this last night, and it tasted nice. Pretty good uh, standard IPA. Not as ridiculous as your West Coast IPAs, but not as boring as your boring old East Coast IPAs. All right. Just kidding uh, about the East Coast IPAs. <laughs> I, love, I love you East Coast. Just kidding, but you're boring. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I've got a couple of picks. I've been kind of into to a marketing and social political kick lately with my books. So I'm going to pick a couple of books that I've read. The first one is The Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin. I'm going to pick the fiction book first because that was just a fun read. It's an older uh, fantasy book, but I really enjoyed it. The second pick is 8020 Marketing by Perry Marshall. And it was just a tremendous book. I really actually want to go back through the book, probably with a bunch of people as kind of a book club or whatever. The other one that's on my list to do that with is Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. So, yeah, I'm, I may actually pull something together. I'm still debating on that. The last pick I have is Miracles and Massacres, and it's a bunch of uh, stories from American history. So if you're from the U.S. and you want to kind of get some stories from the Revolutionary War, you know, the early days of our country, the story I'm in the middle of right now is Thomas Edison fighting Westinghouse, the company, over having DC power transmitted or electricity transmitted into the grid versus AC power being transmitted into the grid. And so, you know, the people involved are Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla, and it's really fascinating. That book is by Glenn Beck, and I know that some people are, they have political leanings that make them not like him, but I didn't really pick up on a whole lot of politicizing on these stories. It was mostly just interesting stuff that happened. So anyway, those are my picks, and I don't think we have anything else. I really would appreciate it if you went and checked out the Kickstarter campaign that I started, if you like this show. It's at devchat.tv slash kickstarter. If you're not into Ruby or Rails, you can ignore all the Ruby and Rails stuff and just go look at the rewards. Or if you want to support the shows, I would appreciate you pledging anyway. 
But yeah, those are all my picks. I guess we're done. We'll wrap up and we'll catch you all next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at iFreakShow.com slash forum. 